Amen. You may be seated. Take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. It's good to see you here this morning. I hope you've had a, a blessed week. I hope you've sensed the Lord present with you in your trials and the things that you struggled with. Matthew chapter 12, we're continuing, returning to our, our walk through the gospel of Matthew. And as you make your way to Matthew 12, I want to tell you about a story I read this week. It was, I, I think, you come across these ideas that you really wish you had come up with, or you wonder what took so long. I read a story this week about Indiana. Up in Indiana, they have these detectors that are on toll roads to alert drivers when they are entering a toll road the wrong way. They were called wrong way detectors. And so what they have is this device that measures when a car is coming in the wrong way and it sends an alert. It notifies the driver, you're, you're going the wrong way. It's a wrong way detector. And in the article, it said that 97 drivers. So first of all, let's recognize that 97 people went the wrong way. Okay, that probably doesn't shock us, but 97 people went the wrong way, and out of that 97, 95 of those people auto-corrected. They, they saw the alert, and they said, oh no, and then they fixed it, and they turned around. Two of them, you know, doing math, two of them did not, but law enforcement and other drivers were able to stop them and, and get them turned around the right way before anything bad can happen. And I thought about that, and I, I thought about that, and you know, I would love to have a wrong way detector in life, wouldn't you? Yeah. I mean, that would just make life so much easier, right? We get that on our phones, maybe we get an alert, say, don't go this route, take this route because there's an accident or whatever, and that's helpful. But not just a wrong way detector on, on our road, but like a wrong way detector for, hey, don't marry that person. I, I'm not saying that I wish I had that. I love, <laughs> but but hey, don't don't make that investment. Uh, don't go into business with that person. Um, don't make this decision or that decision because you're going to go down the wrong way. It'd be nice to have that when you're not going to respond the right way. But responding rightly, when we think about the right way to respond to something, it's really important. That's part of growing up and learning is learning the right way to respond. You know, your kids are growing up and you have a new employee or something and you're training them the right way to respond. How do you respond to this situation? How do you respond to that situation? And we all recognize this whether we realize it or not. You know, when your boss sends you an email saying, please come to my office as soon as you can, you understand that the right reply is not, yeah, when I get to it, right? When we think about the right reply, we've been working through this section in Matthew where, where Matthew is really focusing on calling disciples to follow Christ, to understand who Jesus is and what the right response is. And if you remember the last time we were in Matthew, Matthew showed us, we talked about that Jesus was the only hope we have in the judgment. You remember that? Jesus was the only hope we have in the judgment. We need his righteousness. We need to understand that if we stand before God on our own merits and try to 
uh, be justified and, and declared innocent, we have no hope. We need Jesus. So the question is, understanding that, how do we respond rightly? How do we respond rightly to the need that we have? And so on the heels of that, that passage that we looked at last time, Matthew tells us exactly how we ought to respond to Jesus. How are we to be confronted with that and then understand the right way? In other words, how can we be saved? What must we do with Jesus? And so this morning, there's two types of people here. You are either a believer and you have responded the right way. And maybe you need to be reminded of that. And in being reminded of that, being comforted by that. Every time I am reminded of what the gospel calls me to do, it is one of the most comforting things because in and of itself, the gospel is good news that God has done outside of myself that which I could not do. When I think about the gospel, the good news of Christ, crucified in the place of sinners, resurrected on the third day, that reminds me and assures me that my salvation is not based on anything I do, but on Christ. And so maybe you're a believer here and you need to be reminded of the right response. But maybe you're not a believer. And maybe you think you are a believer, but you're really not. Because what Matthew teaches us this morning is that there's only one proper way to respond to the news of your sinfulness in Christ's person and work. There's one way there's one right response, and that's what we want to examine this morning. What is that right response? How do we receive that which we need? How do we respond to Jesus being our only hope in judgment? Well, first of all, what we don't do is we don't get bossy and demanding. When we look in Matthew chapter 12, we see that's exactly what the Pharisees did. If you're there, say amen. 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 Verse 38 Jesus has been teaching. He's, he's done a miracle. He taught. And now the Pharisees and the scribes respond. And what do they say? In light of seeing a need and their need, being confronted with their need, what they do is resort to bossiness, demanding. Look at what it says. They demand a sign. Now, before we get there, don't forget... In verse 22, what Matthew says, it says, Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and unable to speak was brought to Jesus, and Jesus healed him so that the man could both see and speak, and by implication, he had cast out the demon. That's what started really this whole section. But then we get to verse 38, and it says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now, does that not strike us as a bit comical? I mean, it sort of reads like a Monty Python skit or something on SNL. I mean, Jesus literally just did a sign. He cast out a demon and a man who could not speak and could not see was healed. And their response to that and to Jesus' teaching is, well, you know, we just need a sign. Could you just do a sign for us right now? Well, we know what you did, but, but right now, do it. Do a sign and we'll believe. We're, right, we're waiting. They had seen Jesus do this. And so we see that, first of all, it's not a genuine request. But we also see that when they want this miraculous confirmation, 
notice they want it on their terms. They want it when they want it. And they want it how they want it. So fundamentally, they're missing the idea that if Jesus is who he says he is, and we are who we say we are, we have forsaken all claim to demand anything of God. We have no basis to ask or demand that God do anything for us. So what was the issue then? Was it that they hadn't seen the miracles? No, they saw them. Was it that they, heard, they had not heard Jesus' teaching? No, they had heard. So why ask for a sign? It may have something to do with what Jesus says after this. Their response, I think we can at least say, their response to Jesus is not what it should have been. Because what does Jesus say and what does he teach in his response? It says in verse 39, he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So let's stop right there. What's wrong with their demand? What's wrong with asking for a sign? Well, Jesus says it's because it comes from an evil and adulterous heart. Their request is evil. Now, your translation may say that a generation demands a sign, and I think that's a good translation. It's not just that they asked for a sign, they demanded a sign. And what's wrong with this? Well, think about that. Who are you and who are we to demand anything from God? To place limitations or regulations on Him, to say to God, you must do this now. Well, there's one clue into why this is such uh, an evil thing to say. But Jesus doesn't just call it evil. He says it's adulterous. Now, why does Jesus use this terminology? Well, remember, he's talking to scribes and Pharisees, and they knew their Old Testament. They didn't know it well enough to, to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. But they knew it well enough that by Jesus calling them adulterous, he is portraying them as Old Testament Israel in all their unfaithfulness throughout the Old Testament. Time after time, Israel is referred as, to an, un, as an unfaithful wife. And God is the faithful husband who still loves his people and his bride. And so by calling them an an adulterous generation, he's saying, you have left that which I have called you to. You are not responding in the way that you should and the way that God's people should respond. And so this this spiritual nature of Old Testament Israel, this, this faithless Israel, this unfaithful Israel, is now the one demanding a sign. So think about it. You go back and you read the Old Testament and and God says, I've seen your idols. I've seen the way you oppress the poor. I see the way you treat the widows. I see all your wickedness and therefore I'm going to cast you out of the promised land. And then the exile happens. Now can you imagine someone who right in the midst of the exile said, God, you must do this for me because I demand it. That's a good picture of what's going on here. But here's, here's the thing. Here's what's even worse. That, that's evil and adulterous in and of itself. But, but the reality is, even if Jesus did another sign, they would not have responded properly. They would not. And they did not 
Because we know the rest of Matthew, right? Jesus does several more miracles. And yet they still don't respond the way they should. And you say, do people do that today? Oh, of course they do. Some of us have done it. You know, we, we demand or ask something of God. God, if you'll just do this, then I'll believe in you, right? God, if you'll just provide this money that I need, then I'll finally believe in you. God, if you just answer this prayer. God, if you just help me with this test, then I'll know that you're real and I'll believe in you. It happens. I'll tell you this, it happened to me. I remember years ago, I was, I was traveling, I was driving, and I was heading to Myrtle Beach. And on the way there, I got a speeding ticket. And what had happened before that is I had broken up with my, well, I should say, I, she broke up with me, right? Let's just be honest, no revisionist history here, okay? She broke up with me like two days before, so now I'm on I-40 going and I'm just miserable, I'm not happy, I'm not looking forward to this, I'm supposed to be going on vacation, this is the worst possible timing. I remember going up over a bridge and then boom, there was the sheriff, Pulled me over, got a speeding ticket. Well, obviously that just made things way worse because now I had just been dumped and now I got a speeding ticket. So I remember I got to Myrtle Beach and then uh, joined up with my family. We were riding around and, and all the way between Wilmington and Myrtle Beach, I said some of the most foul things that I've ever said in my life to God. And that's why when we did that sermon on the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, I needed that sermon because I thought about that car ride. But I remember... I was in the car, we were riding as a family, I was sitting in the back seat, you know, and as you do, you're just kind of staring at, out the window, and, and I remember I, I had kind of vented to God on the way there, and, and, and I had kind of come down off of the, the adrenaline of that, and, and finally, I, I remember looking up at the blue sky, and I said, God, if you're real, just give me a sign. Those were the words that I thought. And I kid you not, right, you're go we're going down the road like 35, 45 miles an hour. Anything that I look at in the window will probably be there for maybe a second or two, right? So I look down from the sky, and the first thing that my eyes land on is a church sign. And the only thing that church sign said was, God loves you. You could not have made it any more clear. And so what happened? I got saved, right? Nope. I thought, well, what a coincidence. I thought, well, that's funny. That's a funny story. You see, a sign is not what is going to just suddenly change our heart. A sign is not something that's going to take us from death to life. You see, what is needed is not just a sign. They respond in an evil and adulterous way, but it's not just an innocent response because notice their response is worthy. It's evil and adulterous, their request, but then their response is worthy of condemnation. You see, it's not just that if you fail to come to Jesus the right way that there are no implications. If you fail to respond rightly to the gospel, condemnation is on the line. Look at what it says. He says, no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So he says, I will give you a sign. It's not the sign that you're asking for. You know, it's not the sign that you want. But he said, a sign will be given, and it's the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah, verse 40, 
For as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so also the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at Jonah's preaching. And look, something greater than Jonah is here. So their response and a failure to respond as they should results in condemnation. So the signs wouldn't be enough. Jesus' teaching wouldn't be enough. But Jesus says, even when I give this sign, and what's he talking about, this sign of Jonah? Well, Jonah is a, the, the word is a type of Christ. He is a, 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 a predicting figure of Christ. And he's, he is in the belly of the, the big fish for three days and three nights. So Jesus would be in the earth three days and three nights and rise again. And that's the sign that Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you. I am going to raise from the dead. And he says, but even then, at the last day, the Ninevites will stand up and condemn you. Why? Because the Ninevites responded the right way, and you did not. Well, what did they do? What does Jesus say that they did? They repented. They acknowledged that they had done wrong. And they acknowledged that they deserved judgment. But then they also knew that the only hope they had was to turn to the Lord. Turn to God. And Jesus is saying, I am here. The Ninevites turned to me and repented. Here I am. You're asking for a sign. But you won't repent. What does it mean? To, what does it mean that they repented? Well... Like we said, they turned from their evil ways, right? When in the early church, when Peter's preaching, they ask, what must we do to be saved? He says, repent. So repentance, turning from the sin in our life, turning from all those things, is the first part of the right response. So how do we respond rightly to Jesus? Well, we recognize that we need to turn away from our sin, we need to turn away from our evil ways of life and turn to Him, right? So there is a, there is an, uh, there is a way to respond rightly to the gospel. And the first way is repentance. Is repentance. You say, why didn't they, why didn't they come? Why didn't they repent? The very simple explanation is, is that they were sinners. The same reason you didn't come and repent the first time you heard the gospel. Because of sin. And so here, I want you to understand this. This repentance is, is a miraculous work of God in your heart and in your life. Look at this. Here, I want you to see the severity the defamation, the, the corruption that sin does. Because here you have scribes and Pharisees who are literally face to face with God. And they still won't repent. 
So maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, you've said this before, God, if you would just give me a sign, God, if I could just see something, I would believe in you. If the Pharisees and the scribes could look at God face to face and not change, what makes you think that God doing some small sign would change your mind? It won't. Don't kid yourself that you will stand before God and be able to say, you know, I would have believed in you if you had just given me me a sign do you really want to stand before God on that day and in pride and in arrogance say to God Almighty it's your fault no repentance is the first part of a right response because repentance acknowledges all that we've been talking about that he is holy he deserves to condemn us for our sins and yet he has given Christ and so we turn to him so what does this mean to turn it's not it's not just a mental ascent it's not just that you know the facts about Jesus that you know that he died and rose again and that God is holy and that that Jesus took your sins And paid for them on the cross. It's not enough to know those facts. You do need to know those facts. Those are important. But it's also not just enough to believe that those facts are true. You can believe that those things actually happened. But there's a third part to this that you need to understand. It's not just knowing that that the facts of it, and it's not just believing that they're true, but have you taken them and appropriated them to your own heart to say, my only hope is Christ? Do you see the difference? It's different to say, I, I understand the facts, and, and I think those things really happened, but then you can say all that and then say, but I don't really need it. No, this, this repentance, this is the language of throwing yourself. You know, we, we talk about in, in courtroom language, I'm throwing myself on the mercy of the court, right? When you throw yourself on the mercy, you're saying, I have nothing. I have no hope. I am putting myself in your hands and trusting you, right? So this repenting, this trusting and turning to Christ is to forsake everything else And say, I'm betting it all on Jesus. I am betting my eternal destiny that when that day comes, I will not be disappointed that I have believed in a lie. You're willing to take that risk. Jesus says that something greater than Jonah is here. If the Ninevites repented, how much more ought we to repent and turn to Christ? But here's the thing, that repentance, that repentance is something that God has to give you. In Acts chapter 11, verse 18, it talks about how Gentiles have been granted repentance unto life from God. But that repentance is also the the outworking of a change that God has made in your heart. So repentance, we said repentance is the first part, but remember what Jesus is talking about. The fruit, remember this? We talked about this. The fruit of the tree makes the tree good. So repentance is a fruit of something. What has happened? What takes place 
Well, that's where the second part comes in. Look at verse 42. It's not just repenting, but look at what it says in verse 42. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And look, something greater than Solomon is here. So if we take the Ninevites as an example, and then we take the queen of the south, this is a reference to Solomon and his wisdom. And the queen of the south came up because she heard Solomon was one of the wisest men and she wanted to experience it for herself. If the Jonah example is repentance, what is the example of the queen of the south? I think this is believing. This is believing. There is, there is an acknowledgement that Jesus is the one to whom you must turn and believe. You actually believe it. So much so that it moves you to action. Right? So it's not just enough to say, God, I'm going to put all these things aside. And it's not just enough to say, I'm not going to do bad things anymore. That's not what saves you. What saves you is believing. And that believing is evidence of a work in your heart that God has done. And the fruit of that work is your belief and repentance. So in other words, Jesus is using this example that he gave of the fruit and the substance. God does a work in your heart so that you believe and in believing you repent. So how do we respond rightly to Jesus? If we read the text back through from the end to the beginning, how do we rightly respond? We believe on Him so much so that we turn and trust in Him. If you leave here remembering nothing else, I hope you remember this. You respond rightly to Jesus by believing in Him so that you turn from your sin and to Christ. That's the right way to respond to the gospel. And very quickly, why is that an encouragement for you as a believer? You might say, Jason, I struggle sometimes to believe that I'm actually a Christian. Sometimes I wonder, did I, did I miss something? Did I do something wrong? How can I be assured that I am actually saved? That when I breathe my last breath, that I will enter into glory and not condemnation? Let me ask you a very simple question. Do you believe Do you believe? If the answer to that question is yes, then I want you... I'm not talking about do you believe perfectly. I'm not saying do you believe consistently. I'm not asking do you believe wholeheartedly. But do you believe? Is there any small part of you that genuinely believes your imperfect, inconsistent, incomplete belief and trust in Christ, a perfect, complete, whole, consistent, faithful Savior. That's what saves you. You are saved not by your consistency, 
not by your faithfulness, but by Christ. And if you believe in that, even in the slightest, I want you to be assured that you have responded rightly to Christ. And you say, Jason, it can't be that easy. Why not? Why not? What else is there to add to it? You might say, well, surely God expects me to clean myself up first and then come. Nope. Well, surely that, that my repentance, when, when I turn from my sin, when I say that I'm not going to do those things anymore, that's what saves me. Nope. What saves you is believing in Christ. Trusting Him as your Savior. If you've done that, you can be assured you've responded rightly. If you haven't done that, maybe you think you're going to be saved because of your track record. Maybe you think you're going to be saved because you vote a certain way or because you give a certain amount or whatever it is and you've never actually trust and believed. I want you to be aware that those are not right ways to respond to Christ and His gospel. The gospel plus anything is not the gospel. And so what you need to examine in your own heart is, is have I bought into a false paradigm, a, an untrue framework for what actually saves me? It's not the fact that you're here this morning that saves you. It's not the fact that you bring your kids to church. It's not the fact that you read the Bible. It's not the fact that you pray. It's not the fact that you married a Christian. It's not the fact that they pray. The only right response is for you to trust Christ and Christ alone. That's the right response to Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the good news of Jesus that our sins are paid for on the cross. And God, that when we trust Jesus as our Savior, we are declared innocent. We are declared righteous. We're forgiven. And we have eternal life. We were reminded of that great verse that you so loved the world that you sent your only son that anyone who believes in him will not perish. Not anyone who cleans up their life, not anyone who doesn't do bad things, but the one who believes. God, if we're honest, maybe some of us have a hard time understanding that believing is the requirement because we want to have some part we want to contribute something because if we can contribute something, it means that we've earned it or deserved it. But God, we can't and we don't. And so, Lord, help us who are Christians to understand that if we've believed, if we have turned to Christ because of our faith, where we've responded rightly and we have no expectation that we will be turned away on that last day. But for those who are here this morning who maybe thought it's believing plus something else or 
some, something else totally. God, help them to see that life awaits them if they would just trust Christ for their salvation. That they w- would go all in with their eternal destiny and entrust it to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.